0: uh Before we uh, look at our passage for today uh, let's let's just commit our time now in prayer <sighs> Heavenly Father, we come to you now uh, to hear from you, to hear from your word. and Lord Jesus, we pray that our eyes would be set on you. As we look through your word, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak to us as we do so. Open our eyes to see the truth of your word and help us to understand it, but also help us to see what it means for us today. And so help us, help me as we go through your word to do these things. And we commit our time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, today we're looking at uh, the last portion of our series on Solomon. Uh, we are in 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, verses, well, chapter 9 to 11, so three chapters. Uh, if you've had a chance to read it, that's great, if not, we'll run through it in a moment, but um, But First Kings chapter nine to eleven. These two guys made uh, some pretty big announcements in recent weeks. Uh, On the left is Marty Sampson. Uh, He is a a worship leader for Hillsong, if you know who they are, and songwriter. Uh, We've we've sung a number of his songs. and Joshua Harris, the guy on the right, uh, for those of you who are a little bit older, uh, he wrote the book, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, not a great book, but he made a big impact when he wrote that book. Both of these people are prominent Christians and in recent weeks have renounced their faith or have lost their faith to some degree. Uh, what do we do with that? What do we do when prominent Christians fall from grace? Uh, Or or maybe it's pastors or Christian leaders that we know who we've discovered have some significant moral failure uh, or wrestle with some area of personal sin. Um, What do we do with friends, Christian friends, who wrestle with doubt uh, in their faith? What do we do with all of that? Uh, And as we've looked through Solomon, the big question that we've asked, or the big question that the story asks is Solomon... God's true king. As, you, as we've looked at the life of Solomon, the, the, the story asks the question, is this God's true king? Is he the one who will usher in God's kingdom and his promises? That's the big question that we've been asking. Uh, and as we go through these last chap- few chapters, we, we look at the lives of people who have fallen. We look at the lives of people around us who wrestle and doubt in their faith and we ask the question, what do we do with that? Uh, so let's let's just kind of see where we've come uh, along the way. So right at the beginning, if you followed along, uh, you'll know what's uh, been going on, but if you're not, don't worry, that's fine. Uh, so we start the story where Solomon takes the throne uh, from his father David, wrestling it from his brother who's trying to take it from him uh, and he does that successfully Uh, and following that God appears to Solomon and uh, asks him to request anything of him and God gives him wisdom wealth and status and then following that we see this demonstration of this God-given wisdom and then as Solomon establishes his rule he builds the temple promised by God a place where God would meet with his people where he would make his home and people would be able to come and meet with God and find rest and we're going to pick up where we ended last week we we ended in chapter 9 where Solomon's finished building the temple he's finished building the palace and God appears to him a second time and again we ask the question, how does Solomon finish his life? So let's just recap. We've got three chapters to cover. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to read this. It's it's an interesting read. Um, But we've got three chapters to cover. Let's just run through and summarize what we've got here. So chapter 9, right at the beginning, God appears to Solomon for the second time. And he basically repeats much of what he says through... Uh, his life when he appeared the first time and during the time when he's building the temple he says that if Solomon will walk with God and be obedient then he will keep his promise and David's uh, ancestors will continue to sit on the throne of Israel but there's something new that we saw last week God actually gives a warning that if Solomon and his sons his ancestors do not walk with God and obey God then the promises that he's made to his people will be broken, that he will cut them off from the land, he will cut them off from the, this temple that Solomon's built and they will no longer be in his presence and meet with him. What follows then is a record of Solomon's uh, political life. Uh, we see that things are going downhill. He's needing to uh, get a loan essentially from Uh, Hiram Uh, but in doing that he actually does a poor job of that Um, if you read through it Hiram gets these 20 towns and he's not impressed and that contrasts with when Hiram meets with Solomon in chapter 3 Hiram actually praises Solomon and now we see that this is actually turning around and Solomon's actually failing in this political relationship then we go on and we are reminded again that Solomon uh used slavery. Uh we're told that he uses slavery, where we're also told about uh his uh political setup. Um and then you have this verse twenty four, chapter nine, verse twenty four. And it's just this one throwaway line um where Pharaoh's daughter uh is Solomon one of one of Solomon's wives and uh she has uh, left the city of David, Jerusalem. Uh, and then you, the following verse you have uh, this line saying that Solomon continues to offer offerings and sacrifices. And we'll touch on this a little bit more later, but it should just pique our interest that uh, Pharaoh's daughter is mentioned there. Uh, and then you move to chapter 10 and we have the Queen of Sheba. It's a great story of uh this queen of Sheba, probably around Arabia somewhere, uh, who's heard of Solomon's fame, heard of uh, Solomon. And so she comes to test him. And we get this uh, play of Solomon displaying his wisdom, just like he does in chapter 3 and 4. So again, we, we're seeing parallels with Solomon's earlier life. Uh, Solomon displays the grandeur of his wisdom. And... Uh, then we get to verse 14 and we get this uh, detail of Solomon's wealth. Uh, we have just this extravagant wealth uh, that Solomon uh, attained during his reign. Then we get to chapter 11 and we get details of Solomon's uh, love life, his, his many wives and the product of those many wives and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, and then you you start to see something happen uh, because verse 14, things start to change. So far they seem relatively positive, but verse 14 particularly really shows us that things are going downhill. Because at the beginning Solomon established his throne and he finds establishes peace. But what we see here is actually the total reversal of that where Solomon now has enemies, political enemies, and even internal enemies that are rising up against him. So, this peace that is established is now being lost. And then, verse 26, particularly, we see the internal strife. Uh, and it mirrors his brother's own rebellion at the beginning. So, we're seeing this progression where Solomon starts off really well. He builds the temple, and now we're seeing things unfold and unwind in a reverse pattern. And we're told of how he ends and it's not so good. Uh, there's a few things to note, uh, particularly in the end there. Jeroboam, uh, who's the internal uh, usurper, uh, there's a few things to note there. A prophet authorises this uh, rebellion. A prophet of God authorises this Rebellion, and you can read about that in verse 29. But the other thing to note is that in make, speaking to this potential king, God makes the same promise that he made to David and Solomon. If you obey me, I will keep you on the throne and your ancestors on the throne. That's, that's worth noting. Uh, and then we get the details about how Israel's future will unfold with uh, the 12 tribes we'll we'll unpack some of that not all of it if you've got questions about it come and see me but uh, so yeah uh where are we so how do we how do we make sense of all of this um we started right at the beginning with deuteronomy chapter 17 if you flick over there and i'll put it up on the screen in a second as well but Deuteronomy chapter 17, how do we understand Solomon's life? How do we understand what we've just uh, kind of quickly run through? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verses 14. And this is what it says, uh, follow along. Uh, when you enter the land of uh, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king moreover must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Uh, oh, what's going on? I've lost control, guys. Thank you. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of his law, uh, of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decree and decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel if you've read through those last 3 chapters of Solomon's life there's a few things that should be jumping out to you right now as you go through that there should be things that are just uh No, we're not working. All right. There we go. Okay. So there's a few things that you should notice, let, and let, let's just walk through them. Okay. First thing. He acquires great number of horses for himself. You mean you might be like, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that God said not to do it, and he's gone ahead and done it. Secondly, where does he get these horses from? He gets them from Egypt. He gets them from Egypt. Why is that such a big deal? Egypt is the place where the Israelites were in slavery. God frees them from Egypt. And God says, don't go back there. Don't go back to the place of slavery. So God says, don't go back there. And what Solomon do? He makes his people go back there to get the horses. Chapter 11, what does he do? He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. God says, don't take many wives. Why? Why does he say that? Or his heart will be led astray. And that's what happens in chapter 11. You read through chapter 11 and Solomon is led astray by his many wives. God's warned him and he's done exactly the opposite. Now, chapter 10. God says, don't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now, if you read chapter 10 and you think about it from a worldly perspective, you're like, this is a great man. He's successful. He's got a great trade business. Not only is he buying horses for himself, he's actually trading them at a profit. He's making money. You read that and you're like, this is a great man. He's successful. He's rich. He's got many wives, many wives you think about how much that's going to cost to, to keep the upkeep that's going to be there, and I'm not kidding. In places where polygamy is okay, having many wives is a symbol of success. It's a symbol of wealth. I've gotten wives because I can I can do the upkeep. And when the world reads Solomon's life, it's like this is a great man. He's rich. He's got many wives. He's successful. He's got a growing business. But God says, no. My king shouldn't be like that. And what does Solomon do with his wealth? He turns it into, essentially, a, a storehouse of his wealth. He he turns the gold that he has into shields that he just piles through his house. He, you walk through, I don't know if you have people like this, but you walk into their house and they've just got... Ornaments after ornaments. And why is it there? To just show off what they can what they can buy, what they can achieve. And that's what we read about Solomon, that he has all this wealth, so much so that silver is basically worth nothing. But God says, no, my king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And we've said that in taking many wives, he is led astray. God says that his king should take a copy of the law so that he can read it all the days of his life, revere God and follow him. But Solomon doesn't do that. Yes, for a time he might be faithful in making the offerings and the sacrifices, but the point is there that he's not walking with God. He doesn't follow God's decree. And so after all of that, you you read Solomon's life, you go through Solomon's life, and then you read God's expectations here in Deuteronomy, and you're like, something's not right. Here is a man that the world looks at, puts him on a pedestal, and he's this great man in the eyes of the world. He's achieved success by all the worldly standards, and God says, no, he's failed. He's completely failed. And basically everything that's written there, Solomon's done. He's totally failed that. So what do we take away from that? What do we learn from that? I uh, just want to highlight a few things. See, Solomon appears at a time which many have, have labelled the golden age of Israel. He follows David's reign and and David's brought the people together and united all the tribes. And it comes after a time when for so long, for, for over 400 years, they have been freed from Egypt. God had taken them from Egypt in slavery and he's made them into a nation. He's made them into his own people and particularly David uniting them all. He's made them a people, a nation, from slaves to a nation. And God frees them from that. And when he does that, when he frees them, you can read about this in Exodus, when he frees them from Egypt, he says, I will give you a land. I will give you a place for you to call home, a place where you will be free from your enemies and have rest. And this story of Solomon is meant to be the pinnacle of that. He's built the temple. He's provided a place where God can meet with his people. But he fails to do that. Instead, what he does is he leads the people back into slavery. Maybe not into physical slavery, but into spiritual slavery. His disobedience, his idolatry takes people back into bondage. Let me just unpack that a little bit, because I think it's something that we should uh, try and understand a little bit better. What, what is idolatry? What does it mean? Uh, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator and trusting them for our hope and our happiness, our significance and our security. That's what idolatry is. It's taking things that are created rather than the creator and seeking our hope and our happiness and our significance and our security in them. Right? This God of the Bible is the one who has created all things. And He has freed His people. He's freed the Israelites from slavery so that they don't need anything but Him. That they can find their hope in Him. They can find their happiness in Him. They can find their significance in Him and their security in Him. But what happens is and Solomon's the chief lead in all of this. Solomon is meant to epitomize all of this. He's meant to be an example of all of this. And instead, what does he do? He finds his hope in material things, in his wealth. He finds happiness in his wives, his significance in his wisdom. And he finds his security in his military might. Martin, Martin Luther uh, says this. What is it to have a God or what is one's God? To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need. That is what is meant by God. Now he goes on to say this. The evidence of this appears when people are arrogant, secure and proud because of such possessions or such gods, But they are desperate when they lack them or lose them. What is he saying? He's saying that whatever your God is, whatever your idol is in life, when you've got that, you're arrogant, you're secure, you're proud. You're you're good. But the moment you lose that, you become desperate because you can't take hold of it. And he goes on to say this. Question and explore your own heart thoroughly. And you will find out if it embraces God alone or not. Do you have it in your heart to expect nothing but good things from God? Especially when you are in trouble and in need. And does your heart, in addition, give up and forsake everything that is not God? If so, then you have the one true God. On the other hand, is your heart attached to and does it rely on something else from which you hope to receive more good and more help than from God and when things go wrong do you instead of fleeing to God flee from God if so then you have another God an idol what is it that you put your hope in what is it that you seek to find happiness in what is it that gives you significance and security? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Because if it's not, then there is a God, an idol, in your life. What are they? What What are your gods? What are your idols? Is it your ability? to cram in assignments at the last minute and still get good grades? Is it your ability to essentially fake it until you make it and fool everyone else into thinking that you know what you're doing? Is it in your ability, in your knowledge, in your own wisdom? Or maybe it's more material than that. Maybe it's in your bank account. Or on the flip side, you're stressed about your bank account and constantly checking every other day because you don't know or you're not sure if you're going to have enough. Or is it in your relationships, whether it be a spouse or your friends or your parents or your kids, you find your security and your hope there. What are the what are your gods? What are your idols? What are the things that you go to instead of going to God when you are in need? What are the things that you put your hope in for tomorrow? What are the things that give you happiness? What are the things that give you security and significance? We live in a world that is looking for those things. They are looking for hope. They are looking for happiness. They are looking for security. They are looking for significance. And they are looking all around. And these things in themselves are not bad. They're, they're wanting to improve their health. They're wanting to change the world and make it a better place. They're wanting to have significance. They're wanting to find happiness in their family and give everything to their kids. They're wanting all of these things and not, they're not bad. God gives Solomon wisdom, wealth, and status. They're not bad things. But our hope, our happiness, our security, and our significance is found in God, not in those things. The other thing about Solomon's life is that Solomon was meant to be God's king. God had chosen him, he had put him on the throne and God expected of him obedience and that obedience was meant to secure the promises of God for his people. But as we come to this point, we find that Solomon is not able to do that. A couple of weeks ago we unpacked this a little bit more. But this is the thing, that in life what you depend on is your king. And the question is, is your king, is your God, is your idol able to secure the promises that God makes or that they make? Whatever those things are, are they able to secure the promises of peace, of joy, of hope, of significance, of security? Can those gods do that? Solomon fails to be obedient, and in turn, the people suffer. And the next progression from that is that people will disappoint and fail you. And if I'm honest, there's not many weeks that go by where I'm not disappointed by someone. I don't know about you, but often I go through a week and I'm generally disappointed by someone, if not myself. Right? People will fail and disappoint you. Whatever you trust in, if it's not God, I can guarantee you, it will fail you at some point. It will disappoint you, as good as the promises they make might be. And so we're left with this question at the end of Solomon's life. Did God fail? If God chose Solomon, if God put Solomon on the throne and makes these promises to him... Did God fail? Well, the answer to that is no. How do we how do we see that? Because there are hints even in these final chapters that God is not done with his people. Because there's this hint that God will do something despite Solomon. And we see that mostly in in chapter eleven, uh, verse fourteen onwards, uh, chapter eleven verse fourteen, where we see Solomon's kingdom start falling to pieces, and the peace that he's established being lost. What happens when Solomon when God speaks to Jeroboam, who is the internal rebel? Uh, when God speaks to him, he speaks to him through a prophet, and he says, and this is in verse 31, chapter 11, verse 31, uh, the prophet takes a new cloak, uh, new cloak and he tears it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped uh, Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Melech the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. Verse 34, But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes I will give the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes I will give one tribe to his son so that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem the city where I chose to put my name and, he, and, and it just goes on there's this hint that even though Solomon has failed, God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise because David, Solomon's father, David was obedient. David was faithful. I mean, he messed up himself, but he walked with God. And God says, I will keep my promise because David was faithful. Solomon, no, but David, yes. And so there's this glimmer of hope that as Solomon falls, the promise will still be kept. And so as we finish Solomon, we're left looking forward, looking forward for a king who will fulfill this promise. Solomon's failed. Solomon's messed this up, but we are left looking forward for the king who will keep God's promise, who will be obedient, and who God will keep his promise to. We look forward to a king who is perfectly obedient to God and keeps his commands and law. And we look forward to a king who will lead God's people into God's eternal rest. Now, if you keep reading through the rest of kings, you will be disappointed over and over again. You go from king to king to king and they all disappoint. There are glimmers of hope in there, but at the end they all fail. They all miss the mark. And you go through kings, and at the end, well, it's it it just falls apart. And both the northern tribes that will come out of Solomon and the southern tribes that will come out of Solomon, they will both go into exile they will be sent into exile into Assyria and Babylon. And even then, you wonder, when is this king going to come? And God sends prophet after prophet to remind his people that he will keep his promise. That he will send a king. And then you have the exiles come back. They rebuild the temple. And again, we ask Is this the time when God will bring his king? You read through Ezra and Nehemiah. But at the end of that, you're still left with a sense that something's missing. And you keep going. And prophet after prophet for hundreds of years fill the pages of the Old Testament and they say, no, the, the king's still coming. And then we finally get to the New Testament. We get to the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And what do we read? Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We get to Jesus. And here we have a son of David and as you read through his life, as you walk through his life, he is perfectly obedient. He is perfectly obedient to God's ways. He walks with God. And he, he does all the right things. And, you, and, and the people of that day, and they, they asked, is this God's king? But then what happened? you get to the end of Jesus' earthly life and he's treated like a criminal. And he is instead sent to die on a cross instead of being crowned on a throne. And he dies, a criminal. Is this God's king? Well, the rest of the story goes that this Jesus rises from the dead. That he conquers death. This man, this son of David dies. Why? To take hold of sin and the brokenness and the, the evil of this world to cast it out into darkness and free his people from slavery. Not a physical slavery, but a spiritual one. Jesus, the son of David, God's king, frees people from slavery. Just as God freed Israel from Egypt, from Egypt, Jesus frees people from slavery to sin and brokenness of this world. He frees them. And in his death and in his resurrection, he takes hold of the promises of God that God made to David and Solomon and the expectations of God's king. And he lives up to them. He fulfills them. And because of that, God, through Jesus, will bring people into his rest. He will bring them into his promised land. He will bring them to a place where He will meet with them, where He will dwell with them, where He will walk with them. And they will be His people and He will be their God. And that's that's the point of Solomon. You read through the life of Solomon and that's the point. People will fail you. People will fail you. But he is God's King. In Jesus, who will not fail you. And instead, he will uphold the promises that God made from the beginning through the people of Israel, through the prophets, through the kings. That he will send one who is perfect, who is obedient, and in him, God will fulfill his promise. So what do we do with that? Let me suggest a couple of things. This is is not exhaustive, but let me suggest a few. things. Surrender your idols. Surrender your idols, whatever they might be. Whatever it is that you find your hope, your happiness, your significance, or your security in. If it's not Jesus, surrender them. Let go of them. Because they won't satisfy. Maybe for a time. Maybe even for a number of years. But at some point, they will disappoint you. They will leave you asking questions. They will leave you in doubt. And how do we do that? How do we surrender these idols? The first thing is that we need to embrace Jesus for all that he is, all and who he is. We need to know. We, we need to know who Jesus is, what he has done in order for us to embrace Him and to trust Him. And so, read through the Scriptures. Read through and see Jesus. See what He has done. See who He is. Compare Him with the idols of this world and see how they stack up. And as you do that, see that He is God's King. I hope you will see that He is God's King. And that his perfect obedience, his perfect life will ensure that God will keep his promise if you put your trust in him. If you put your trust and your hope, your happiness, your significance and your security in him, God's promises will be sure and true. Secondly, expect God to work. Too many many people expect that God's going to suddenly click his fingers and make things happen. But they just sit there. They just sit there in life and they, they're just waiting. There's, we should have an expectation that God will work. We should expect that God will show himself to be good. If he says that he is good, even if the circumstances don't appear to be good, he will show himself to be good. And we we should have an expectation God will do that. Too many people don't actually expect anything of God. Expect that God will work and show you His goodness. But that requires you to surrender those idols. Because until you surrender those idols, you won't expect God to show up. Because you keep fleeing from Him rather than to Him. As long as you keep looking to the world, to other things, to other people, and not look to God you won't see him work because your attention is too focused the other way. Just as Solomon was led away away by his wives, if your attention is over here on all these things and trying to find hope and happiness and security and significance in them, you won't see what God is doing. We need to expect and trust that God will work for good despite the circumstances around us. But I think in all of that, We ask for help because this is the thing, that we live in a world that is going to distract us and tempt us and draw our attention away. There are worldly wives that surround people and draw them away to idols and other gods. And we need help to turn our eyes on God, to turn our eyes on Jesus. I shared with um someone the other day. There's this magnificent, magnificent story where a man a father with um a son that was possessed, um, brings him to Jesus well brings him to his disciples first, and disciples can't do anything. And he brings him to Jesus and he says, Help me And Jesus says, If you believe I can. But then the man says, "I believe, but help my unbelief." Do you hear that? I believe, but help my unbelief. It's in Mark chapter eight from memory. We need to ask for help, and you know the the amazing thing is that we have this precious gift. Uh, called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we might have help. Now a lot of people ask the question, well, why, did, why, didn't Je- why isn't Jesus just here? Why isn't Jesus just... Why can't we have Jesus now? But this is the thing. The disciples ask this same question. It's like, why can't you stay? And Jesus says, unless I go, the Counselor, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit will not come. And so people go, well, wouldn't it be better to have Jesus? It's like, well, if Jesus is here, then we don't have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who lives in us and is with us and is God's presence with us to help us. He is the Counselor. He is The comforter. And when we invite Jesus into our lives, when we put our trust in Him and seek Him for our hope, our happiness, our security and our significance, He gives us the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we can say, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so as we seek to surrender the idols of life to God, ask for His help, ask for the Holy Spirit to work and to transform you so that your eyes are set on Jesus instead of those idols and gods of the world. Surrender those idols to God, and as, I, as I've said, the life of Solomon and Really, the life of every single person in the Old Testament is a reminder that people will fail. And that includes us. We will fail. Because we live in a world that is tainted by sin, that is broken. And because of that, we will fail. But that sh- as, as much as that sounds discouraging, as much as that sounds hopeless, as much as all of that, God hasn't left us. Without hope. All the way through, God is sending His messengers to remind His people that He will send His king, His man, who will show them the way. And in Him will show them how they can live in the promises of God. You can search elsewhere. you can can look to the self-help books, you can look to life coaches, psychology, other religions, and even other Christians. But they will disappoint you. They will disappoint you. Because they, just like Solomon, just like Moses, Abraham, and all the kings, and even the prophets themselves, they're human. And they need help as much as we do and it's easy for us because it's tangible we, we look to, to people we look to leaders we look to pastors we look to these Christian celebrities for answers to life we look to them to show us the way they're not perfect and I hope none of you look up to me because I certainly will disappoint you at some point Look to Jesus. He is perfect. He is obedient to the Father, to God, and he shows us the way. So give him a chance. If you've never given him a genuine chance, give him a chance to show you what life can look like. Put your lot in with him and see what happens. But as long as idols and other gods distract you, as long as other things draw your attention for hope, for happiness, for security and significance, you will miss what Jesus has for you and what he has for this world. Because after all, it's not just about us, but it's about everyone. The whole point of Solomon and Solomon building was building the temple was so that people, all people, could meet with God. And the point of our life is not just to find our hope and our happiness and our security and significance in Jesus for ourselves, but so that the world might know that they too can find hope, happiness, significance and security in Him. It doesn't end with you. It ends with Jesus. Our search in life ends with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who has given us life. And we ask that you help us to look to you for the hope, the happiness, the security and the significance that we all long for. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see that you are the King, the one true King who is able to uphold God's expectations, who is perfectly obedient, and that we can look to you and trust you because you are perfect. And Holy Spirit, help us in our unbelief. Help us turn our eyes away from the gods and the idols of this world and to look on Jesus. Help us in our unbelief. And we ask this in Jesus' name, expecting that you will work for good, not for evil because you love us you have shown us your grace you have shown us mercy beyond measure and you gave your life to prove it to us so we pray this in your name amen